Good morning, everyone. Welcome. If you're new or visiting, we're glad to have you. Just pray you'd feel uh, God's love. If you have any questions, we have ushers in the back. Uh, we're up here. Pastor Stephen, um, our pastor, he is celebrating his mom's 70th birthday. Um, so they're enjoying that a lot in Spokane with the family. Um, his mom is a has been faithful for many, many years to pray for him. And so uh, what you see in Pastor Stephen is the answer to prayer um, for, from his mom. So uh, she's a, a wonderful woman. Uh, today we're going to be in John chapter 5. Um, ushers in the back have Bibles. If anyone needs a Bible, you can raise your hand and they'd love to give you one. We'll be in John chapter 5. We're going to be verses 1 through 17. A couple of Bibles up front here, it looks like. John chapter 5, 1 through 17. As we continue our series through the book of John. If you remember back, if you, maybe you can't remember this back because it's too long ago, but if you remember back to the 80s, um, I was in the seventh grade. Uh, if you remember uh, the 80s, there was a lot of bright colors. Chris remembers the 80s. Uh, I don't think you were in the seventh grade, though. No. <laughs> I was at Fleming Middle School. Fleming Middle School. And I had a desire to fit in. Um, I wanted to be part of the crowd. Um, I felt like an outsider. I had this just great desire to, I wanted, I wanted, to, be, I wanted to be included um, as, a, as others are. And those styles in the 80s, though, they kind of precluded people from really fitting in, I think. Um, so, but I tried. I wore a bright colored shirt, um, neon, I think it probably was. Um, this is the sad part. I wore spandex shorts as a seventh boy, grade boy. Um, a, this, my grandma gave me this big build hat, and I kind of felt obligated to wear it because I guess it was supposed to be cool. And my hair was longer in the back. You remember what that was called? A mullet, yeah. It wasn't a very good mullet. And then I had this, like, spiky hair thing on the side. I'm not sure why we did that, but that's what you had, had this. So I was trying to fit in. And if you're going to dress like that or act like that, you've got to be confident. And I was not. I was not confident at all. Um, yeah, it was, it was rough. I, I wish I could forget those years. Uh, actually, in some ways, I'm glad my memory's not that well, because um, it isn't. But it was a, a, a sad time. I was working to fit in. But it really was exhausting. I, I was working to be part of the group, and it was tiring. I was working, but there wasn't a lot of contentment in there. Now, uh, there are some of you who are in the seventh grade, and maybe you're struggling with the same thing right now. Be thankful you didn't live in the 80s, because <laughs> I think styles maybe look a little better today than they did then. But we are all working for something. It really is true. Uh, we, we, we desire different things. We, we, we were working for someone or we were working for something or some need. And trying to find rest in the midst of work is often difficult. John 5 is about um, rest. It's about people who are working but striving for rest, both now and in the future. Uh, rest in a biblical sense, is a sense of, of peace and contentment and fulfillment. And there's the idea of that we want that now, and then there's this idea that we want it even more in the future. And so we're, we're working for that. So the, the focus of the, today's sermon, you'll see it up on the screen, is this. All people work, but not all work leads to rest. Meaning, um, we all are working in some way. But on all our work leads to a way in which we have peace and contentment and fulfillment. So here's the plan for our message. 
It's a little bit different than normal. I'm going to read the text, and we're going to kind of go through and explain it a bit and expose it. It's a, it's a really good story, and so I don't want us to miss the story. But then we're going to go back after that, and there's three different characters, a groups of characters. I'm going to look at their lives and see how um, a disabled man, how the Jewish leaders, and then finally Jesus, how they relate to work and rest. And there's irony in the story, and we'll see it in their lives, that the story result, revolves around the Sabbath day, but rest is really something that's elusive, and it's hard to find. That's the irony of the story. So we'll begin John chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, and then we'll go through. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus, was, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And we'll stop there. Jesus has been traveling, he's noticed, back and forth between northern Israel and southern Israel. He's been in Jerusalem and back to Galilee and back a few times. And in the north is where he had his focus of ministry. He was raised in that area. We've seen Cana and Nazareth. And then in Jerusalem, he would go down for the feast where all the population goes, where the temple was. And the first time he did, he went to the temple. And if you remember, he cleansed the temple, right? And then the second time, though, when he comes down in Jerusalem, he is at a the first time he was at the Passover, this time he's at another feast of the Jews, but we don't know exactly what it is. But he doesn't go to the temple. He goes to those who are outsiders, those who are blind and lame and paralyzed. He goes to the disabled. And, and where, where he finds them is at a pool in Jerusalem. It was called Bethesda. And there was a, it's kind of Jewish folklore or the idea that if someone was to be able to get into the pool when the waters were stirred, they could be healed. And so you had people there who were, the Bible in this case describes as an invalid. <laughs> when we were reading this at home, um, one of my family members said invalids, and it's not invalids. <laughs> we don't use this term anymore. Let's just say these were folks that were disabled, and so we'll avoid using that term. Here, here was a group of people who, um, who needed healing, and they longed for healing. Now, if you look at your Bibles, it's kind of weird. It says one, two, three, and then most of you are missing verse four, and then it goes on to verse five. Now, if you look at the footnote, this simply means that verse four was probably later just inserted there by an editor because they thought, this is important knowledge to know about uh, what's the context here. So it says this idea that there's this folklore that people, if they got in, they could be healed. Even if it's not there, verse seven really makes it clear, though, that this is what's happening. You can get it even without verse four. So here's what's happening. One, two, three, these are people are looking for um, healing at this pool. Let's continue on in verse 5. One man who was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and, I am, and while, I am going, while I am going, another steps down before me. So we hear, see here in these, these, these verses, in verse 5, we meet, meet the disabled man. How long has he been disabled? It says 38 years. This is a long time. And, and, and this time, um, many people didn't live past the age of 10, and so the average lifespan was generally in the 30s. Um, it, you know, that, that's the average, though. So this man is older than that, but he's been disabled for a long time. And Jesus says that he saw him, he knew he'd been there at that pool for a long time, looking to be healed. And so Jesus asked him the question, do you want to be healed? 
And sometimes that question is asked by Jesus, because he does this a number of times. It's kind of like, well, why is he asking that? Well, obviously the guy needs, needs, wants to be healed. But no, Jesus wants to know, is, is he desire to be healed? Does he have faith to be healed? And so he asks this question. In this story, though, as a Bible reader, we have to think about this and, and discern something here. The man responds in a way that you could say, oh, he's saying, yes, please, I've been sitting here for so long. I've been waiting. I want to be healed. You could see it as an act of faith. I really don't think that's what this story, I'm pretty confident that's not what's happening here. In this story, the man is really saying, what is your problem? Obviously, I mean, I've been sitting here for so long. I'm I'm hopeless. I've never been able to get into the pool. What do you think, man? I've been here for so long. He's not showing faith. He's actually showing a lack of faith. He he was never quick enough to get into that pool. He'd always lost the race. He'd kind of become hopeless and faithless. In this case, Jesus doesn't find a, a man who is full of faith. He finds a man who's trusting in, in folklore. And so this man is hopeless and defeated. Let's now look at verse 8. Let's see how Jesus responds to that. In verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. What an act of compassion and grace to Jesus seeing this man. And at the, at, at the man's, uh, Jesus' word, he immediately Rises up. He takes up his bed and walks. He'd been there for, he'd been disabled for 38 years. He had longed, and now he's there. And you would think if the story stopped right here, there would just be great rejoicing and praise, and wow, I'm healed, and the story would end. But there's a turning point. Look at verse 9, the second part. It says this. And that day was the Sabbath. This is important. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. The day, this day, happened to be the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week. The day where we read earlier that God rested upon the Sabbath after the seventh day of creation. A model for, for humans. And the Jews, the Jewish leaders, they um, were present for that feast, and they weren't happy that a man was breaking the Sabbath law. The, the fourth commandment, the, 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 the law of the Sabbath. And they had been entrusted in the Bible to be the ones who oversaw and to lead the people. Now, the Bible understands work in a certain way. Like, the Bible's definition of work is that which you, do, like, on set, to rest on the Sabbath, is to not do the things you normally do in your daily work. But the Jewish leaders had, over time, invented ways in which they increased or expanded the definition of work. I think many of you know this. And one of the ways in which they do that is that you, you couldn't carry something from one place to another place, from one domain to a different domain. There might have been some distance in that, but you get the idea. They, had, they couldn't do that. That was considered work. So this man was technically violating their tradition of the elders. He wasn't you know, violating the true Sabbath what God had. So it's quite striking here at this story that the man is critiqued and criticized for violating the Sabbath, but what don't the Jewish leaders do? You don't see any sense they're saying, wow, a man has been healed, praise God. You don't see that. It's, it's contrasting, it's ironic that we see this happen. So, how does the disabled man respond to this inquiry, to this what happens to him? Well, we'll see, he passes the buck. Look at verse 11. But he answered them, the man who had been healed, he's, the, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? 
Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. I think many of you know this, in order to keep a lower profile, Jesus didn't want a lot of publicity um, at certain times because he, he knew that one day there would be an event would take place, the cross, in which great publicity would take place. He would enter into Jerusalem and ride in, in, in on a donkey and proclaim it. But that time was not now. And so he, he would keep a lower profile at time. And so here he did that. And so this disabled man who was healed never really got the name of the person who healed him. So when he's questioned, he says, um, rather than saying, and re, rather than rejoicing in the miracle, he says, well, that guy, the guy who healed me, he told me to do it. So instead of instead of honoring the one who healed him, he, in many ways, tells on the one who has healed him. And so the Jewish leaders now realize that they're upset, not just that this man is violating the Sabbath, but there's a man who's going around telling other people to violate the Sabbath. To, that he's an even greater threat than the man who is carrying his bed. So, even after this poor response from the man who tells on Jesus, let's see what happens next. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, this is kind of a, this is an important um, event or aspect of the story that we need to think about. Now, Jesus finds this man in the temple, and, and we can surmise that because he was um, disabled, he, he had been excluded, been an outsider, and now he felt he, he had received healing, and now he's included. Now he can come in, and he goes to the temple, this central part of Jewish society, where Jerusalem is, where the temple is, and uh, and there he can be, not Jerusalem, where the temple is, where he can be included with the group. The opportunity to evade him for, evaded him for so long, and now he can be included. So Jesus goes to him, and he doesn't just reveal like the name or himself uh, who healed him, but he actually gives him a warning. We see that. He says, you are healed, but if you sin again, worse consequences may follow. It really seems evident here, it comes to find out, that this man, he had been disabled for 38 years, his disability, some way, related to his spit, his sin. Now, it's important to think about this. We certainly know that not all disabilities are, for, are because of someone's specific sin. We do know that all problems in this world are a result of general sin, but the specific sin doesn't necessarily relate to um, a specific consequence or a disability. But sometimes that is true. There are some sins in which people um, commit that consequences happen, and this person seems to be that that resulted, his sin resulted in his disability for so long. And so Jesus comes to this man, and he warns him, he says, you've now been healed. And now you have new understanding of God and his kindness and goodness. Don't sin again, lest worse things happen to him. Jesus exhorts him to help him see that and come to himself. This warning is key, I think, to understanding that this man isn't living by faith. He, he is caring about something else. He's working for something else. And this is apparent in what he does next in verse 15. Verse 15 says this, The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. The man doesn't get it, right? He doesn't get it. Rather than heeding the warning of Jesus 
and his kindness and healing, he goes on and he tells on Jesus. He, he points the finger. He throws Jesus, I think it was Seth, maybe it was Rose, says he threw him under the bus when we were talking about this. As a result, the Jews sought to harass Jesus. They sought to harm him. They sought to persecute him. And in their zeal for God's law, which they thought was God's law, but was really their own law, they sought to do away with Jesus and his work. But how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Um, if you know the Gospels, the, the, the stories about Jesus and the history of his life, you notice that there's a number of times in the Gospels where the Sabbath comes up, and Jesus then gives reasons why it perceives that he's violating the Sabbath. He's not, but why he's doing that. It says that one of the reasons he says is that you should have compassion for a person over a rigorous law that you're observing. If someone's animal falls into a pit, even on the Sabbath day, you should care for that, 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 that animal and that family by helping. Another thing that happens is um, there's the idea that um, he says that man, um, Sabbath is not, Sabbath is for man and not man for the Sabbath. That this was supposed to be a day that was given to man for rest and encouragement and worship. And so it was for him, not as some burden upon him. But this instance is important to understand. This is unique what happens here. Jesus relates his actions on the Sabbath to his relationship with God. He relates his actions on the Sabbath to his relationship with God. Jesus really ignores the question of what, um, of whether he breaks the Sabbath law. Rather, he actually plainly states that he is working on the Sabbath. See that? He says that my father is working until now and I am working. Because his father works, he's working. In some ways, he's saying, guilty is charged. The book of Genesis records that God, you know, he created the earth, he created all things, and on the seventh day, he rested. But God didn't stop working. He's the one who sustains all things, and he providentially cares over the world. And Jesus is saying, I, like my father, continue to work. He's making a claim about his relationship with the father, different than all other people. When other men ought to rest or to rest, Jesus declares that I'm working because my father was working. This is, this is pretty important. This is actually kind of, it's a bombshell when Jesus says this. And we're not going to get into this all the way because next week, Pastor Stephen's going to be really talking, diving into and thinking about the Trinity and how the relationship of Jesus and his father, and when he's doing this, he actually says, verse 18, he's making himself equal with God. That's a big deal he's saying here. We'll talk about that next week. But for now, we're going to transition to considering these three characters in our story. We're talking about the Sabbath, but there's a rest that's elusive to them. And so we're going to begin with the disabled man, then we're going to look at the Jewish leaders, and then we're going to close with Jesus. So here we go. Now, who is the disabled man? What is he working for? It seems pretty clear that this man is working for his own desire for health. He, he, he wants to be whole. That's pretty much all he has. And, he, he, and he's longed for this for 38 years. And he really has done, done this, you know, nothing else but sit there at the pool. And in some sense, he's resting, but he's not resting. He's laying there, but he wants to be healed. He's tired and he's defeated. But there's something more, I think, that we really can tell here. This man is, he, he wants to be healed, but his unrest is really even more that he wants to be included. He wants to be accepted in society. He's been on the outside. 
And the miracle that happens in his life, he gains the health that he wanted, but he still wants to fit in and gain more. And so when the Jewish leaders come to him and ask him about his violation of the Sabbath, um, he's threatened. He, he's been healed, but he's in a pickle now. He either has to, um, he, 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 in order to keep his newfound acceptance in society and ability to go to the temple, he either has to choose that or he has to unalign himself with Jesus. He, something has to give. He can't be aligned with both. He can't have the acceptance of society and um, be aligned with Jesus. And this is what we see in his desire here. We, fear that he, we see that he has a, a fear to lose something. The, the man has been an outsider. He's been disabled. And now he fears losing what he now has gained. So the question is, is this man finding rest now that he's healed from his work? No, absolutely not. I want us to think about the, each of us together. When we work to gain acceptance, we must work to maintain acceptance. If I, I, if I work to fit in, then I have to work to keep that. Acceptance really is a gift from another. You, you, can't, you can't earn acceptance. It's given to you. If it's worked for, then it's in jeopardy. Think of Philip. That's me in middle school. <laughs> I earned, I was trying to earn acceptance. If I would have earned it, which I never did, <laughs> I would have been, had to keep it. Maybe at work or at school or at church, if, if your friendships go that, you have to keep them. Think of your, think of the friendships that you gained by working for it or trying to figure out a way that I can get into this group. They're fragile. They're potentially um, going to fail. But think of the friendships that you have or the relationships you have that have been a, a gift to you. Where two people, you know, give themselves to one another in a way that says, I accept you into my life. This is a, a gift. It's something that you have to earn afterwards. There's just a, a general acceptance. Now, we're in a broken world so that you can lose that. But while in the relationship, there is, it's been a gift. You don't have to strive for it. It's just simply given to you. I want to be liked by people. Do you want to be liked by people? I think we generally do. We want to be liked by people. Now, I don't think this is a bad thing. I want to be part of the group. But if wanting people to like me, or if you want people to like you, and that's what you work for, it's good. you're going to toil for that for a long time. It's like grasping onto the wind. It just keeps slipping through your fingers. And, and the sad part of what happens when we long for acceptance and we fight for it is that in fighting for acceptance, we really will fight for acceptance at the expense of another. In the nursing, we actually will fight for our own acceptance at the expense of another. This is another irony in this story. Gaining acceptance, we often hurt others to gain our own acceptance. Maybe it's, um, think about this, sometimes we do this. We share a story about another person uh, that makes ourselves look good in the story. We might make a joke about another person that gets a laugh that helps us to be considered funny or included in the group. Sometimes we'll sacrifice our own, our own integrity by doing something we wouldn't normally do. Sometimes we call that peer pressure. Kids do that. 
Adults do it at times. So this is a warning for us. The fear of losing the acceptance of others has the temptation of gaining acceptance as another's expense. This is a really a sad aspect of what happens. This is what, if you think of the story, this is what the disabled man did at the expense of Jesus. He sold Jesus out to gain acceptance for himself. He told on Jesus. He didn't honor him as the healer. This, this disabled man tells us a sad story that working for acceptance isn't restful, it's actually harmful. So let's pray for our own lives that we recognize when we're desiring acceptance over other things. Now, next one. Let's consider the Jewish leaders. There's some important things here that I think are very helpful to us. The Jewish leaders, who did they think they were working for? They thought they were working for God, right? They, they lived their lives that way. It's evident that they wanted to um, help the people understand these are the laws that God gave us, and this is the way we're supposed to live. And, and the, 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 the Old Testament, remember Ezra and Nehemiah, when they came back from exile, Israel did? At that time, um, the temple had been destroyed, the people had gone into Babylon. Now they come back and the temple was rebuilt and they, the society was restored and Yahweh was worshipped. And one of the things that people began to do was break the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders were given this role and responsibility to help the people follow the Sabbath so they wouldn't end up in exile. If you remember what, jo- Pat, or what Jonathan read earlier, that the Sabbath was so serious that people who broke the Sabbath were to be put to death. So they took their role seriously, and they wanted to do what was right. But many of you know, and we all, I think many of us know, that over time, these laws of God began to become the traditions of men. And so there was this sneaky air of thinking their idea of what was the Sabbath was really God's, and so they were enforcing their own rules over God's law. Um, I was thinking about it. I've been a pastor here at the, uh, the Chapel Church for 14 years. I've been here for 21 years. And um, I've been involved in lots of different activities and planning and um, uh, organizing things at the church and making um, you know policies and all these different things. And when, I'll tell you, it's hard at times when someone new comes in and has a different idea. Especially when you, your idea th- seems like you think you have the right idea. Especially when you think that your idea is like the most biblical idea when it really has just become something that you do rather than actually is from the Bible. And when that happens, it's, it's threatening, it's challenging. And so you think, you have, to, you have to check yourself. What am I doing here? Am I standing on something that's my own? Or is it something that, uh, that I should be flexible in? Or is it really biblical? Having a strong conclusion about something can make you in a way of thinking, if that thing is challenged, you can say, I'm losing control. I'm being threatened. So I begin to think, I'm going to keep this my way. And when you do that, it does not lead to rest. The Jews here were threatened. Jesus was commanding a man to carry his mat on the Sabbath, and they thought, our way of life is being challenged. They believed the command of God was being walked upon. But in reality, it was their own ideas. And it was revealing that their own power and their position is what they wanted most. It wasn't they um, were truly supporting God's law. They were actually 
wanting the honor and the, the, the place that they had as leaders. So Jesus' threat revealed something about them. These men were no longer working on behalf of God, but in many ways they were working as God. They were working as God. And this work as God is not restful. It's really exhausting to work in the place of God. Only God has that place. Only he can do it. It's surprisingly easy for one who's in authority in lots of different places, maybe at work, some, uh, maybe a, a team captain, could be a church leader, could be someone at business. It's surprisingly easy to become attached to power and influence. Most people who start out in leadership, I, I really think they start out in humility. They want to serve others. But the place of leadership can become a snare. Church leaders can like the honor and respect of their position over time and begin to cling to it. Uh, parents, we can take great offense when we don't feel like we ha- are getting the respect that we deserve, that we expect. Uh, someone who's a teacher or a business person, uh, a husband or a wife, um, can be attached to that respect that they desire. Now, it is not wrong, it's actually right, to respect your leaders, to respect your church elders, to respect your parents. It's the right thing to do. But if that, if the leader or the parent who's entrusted with that begins to take that as what they expect and own and want, it can get out of place. We parents are entrusted with leading our kids in God's way. We are to show them right for wrong. And kids are to uh, respect their parents. But at times, <laughs> I think maybe you know this, kids won't respect. It happens, right? And when that happens, you learn in your own self if the respect that I want has become an idol. And one of the ways you do that is to consider how does my emotion, the emotion of anger, happen in my life? Does my blood pressure begin to rise and like your justice meter go, I want that respect. When honor isn't given as you expect, does your anger arrive? The Jewish leaders we see here were challenged by Jesus. They felt their power, the control, and the influence they had, the honor that they, they felt it was threatened. And so they became angry, and they began to persecute Jesus. Their anger showed forth that their position had become idolatrous. Anger is often the telltale emotion that singles that were too attached to something, to our position or a way of doing something. And the Jewish leaders show that. So, when you get angry, when I get angry, we should ask ourselves, am I angry because something is truly wrong in this situation? Or am I angry because I'm not getting my way, or I'm losing control of what I want? If you're a church leader here, when someone in your church challenges you, someone in the church challenges here, maybe in something that you have a long-standing belief in, that you hold strongly, how do you respond? When you feel like the respect that you've earned over the years isn't given, does does it come forth in anger, or are you able to take it and consider it and see and judge it as right and wrong? Husbands or wives? Wives. Husbands or wives? How do you do when you're challenged? Does anger come forth 
when, you're, when you feel like your spouse has disrespected you, do you lash out? If respect and honor and place are something that you begin to become too attached for, to, it is not restful. It will eat us up. Personally, over the last few years, um, I've realized, I, I didn't know this, but it, it, it came out in different situations, that I really do have a, a desire for respect. I've realized it's, like, it's an important matter in my life, and, and, and especially when I'm with my peers. And when I don't get it, um, I'm normally a pretty laid-back person. I, I, I saw I was actually going on the attack at others. I, I wanted to get it back. The Lord has shown this to me, and it's exhausting to want to earn and gain and take those things back, to crave this honor. And Jesus exposed the disabled man's sin and revealed his craving for acceptance. And Jesus revealed the Jewish leader's need for place and position. And Jesus will make us uncomfortable. And Jesus will offend our status quo. He unearths that work that does not lead to rest. And we should be really thankful for that, that he's willing to dive into our lives and do that. But the last question is, what about Jesus? Does his work lead to rest? And again, the, the answer is actually going to be a little bit surprising than what we see. Let's look at Jesus. In verse 17, we go to it again, it makes it clear that Jesus is working. Right? He is working. He's working on the Sabbath. And it makes it clear who he's working for. Who's he working for? He's working for his Father, for God. One of the first recorded acts of Jesus is about his work. He, his parents, um, he, he's, um, they don't know where he is, and they go and they try to find him. And when they finally find him, he says, oh, what's been going on, Jesus? And they say, I must be about my father's business. I'm in his house. It must be about his work. Jesus' Jesus's life began with work. The story of Jesus' life is a life that is submitted to God's work from beginning to end. From his birth to his death, Jesus had everything about his desire being the work of the fathers, his will, God's will. And the irony of this story, which is about Sabbath, which is about rest, is that the work of all three, this is, did not lead to rest. The disabled man worked for his acceptance. He, did not, he didn't find rest. The Jewish leaders worked for their place and position, their traditions. They didn't find rest. And Jesus worked for his father. And you would think the life of Jesus, a life that was completely given to God, fulfilling in the sense he's living out the plans of God, his perfect life, you would think to lead the rest, but what did it lead to? It led to his rejection, rejection, not his acceptance. It led to, led to his humiliation. It led to the one who had the highest place coming to the lowest place. He didn't find acceptance, but... Loneliness. Even his closest friends betrayed him. The Jewish leaders and the Romans, they, um, he had the rightful place as king. And what did they do? They mocked him as a king. And they crowned him with the crown of thorns, not as making him a king, but just mocking that he said he was a king. Pilate said, king of the Jews, and everybody said they were saying to take it down. Jesus' perfect life, a life of work for God, was one of the least restful lives you can imagine. But there's another twist in the story, another irony. This most hard-working life and this least restful life, it is the means to bring true rest to all people. 
the rest for which we all, in different degrees, long for rest. Jesus' life brought that rest. A, a present rest, a present rest they can experience today, and then a future rest that's altogether wonderful. And Jesus worked for his Father. But the purpose of Jesus' work was a work for others, for his neighbors. God sent his Son for others. Jesus was exhausted in his life. His life was spent for love of neighbor. He lived as a servant of others. This is a model for us and for the work that we do as Christians. He gave his life as a ransom for others. Jesus' unceasing work, his exhaustion, was to provide a Sabbath rest for others. Contrast the disabled man and the Jewish, um, and the Jewish leaders with Jesus. Jesus gave, Jesus gives rest and peace and contentment because he is the only one that it fully accepts you. You don't have to earn it. He's given a gift to those who are his. Whereas the disabled man had Jesus right in front of him, he could have been accepted by Jesus. He didn't choose that. Jesus also gives rest in the sense of peace and honor and place. The Jewish leaders fought for that. What does Jesus declare about his people? They're sons and daughters of God. As he is the son of God, he gives rest to his people by making them sons and daughters of God. And Jesus' exhaustion was to provide Sabbath rest for all others. But there's even more. There's even more twists to the story. Jesus is still at work today. Jesus is still at work today. After he died, he rose and ascended to the Father. And there he sits. He rests at the right hand of God. But the Bible tells us that in that resting where he's at, his work is finished, it says that he, in Hebrews 7, he always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to him. Jesus is still working for his people. He's still working for others. When you or I, we sin and we need help, he acts on our behalf. When we're condemned um, by our enemy, Satan. Jesus stands on our behalf. When we are restless, he gives help. Jesus, in his humanity, being fully man, he came and he lived the life that we needed to live. He lived on behalf of us and he died on behalf of us. That, that's the idea of Jesus being fully man. But this passage is really emphasizing that Jesus is the Son of God. And that fact means that Jesus is always working for his people. So practically, what does this, this theology mean for us? How do you receive the rest that Jesus gives? This adds a little more irony to the story. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us this. It says, you must strive to enter that rest. <laughs> Working, striving to enter the rest. But what work do you do? The work you do isn't really work at all, but rest. This is the irony. Your work is the work of faith. The way you strive to enter the rest is a work of faith. It's a trusting in what Jesus has done. Believing that his work fully completed all that needed to be done. You believe his work, when he said it is finished, you believe it is finished. You believe that his life was sufficient for all past, present, and future needs that you have. 
both your sin and all your needs, Jesus has completed the work. This is the irony of this. The one who is Lord of all, he works at all times to give you this, and now you simply receive, and that's the work that you do. Church members, people who are um, as, as members of this church, as followers of Jesus, you have another work. We are to exhort one another to enter this rest, to have faith in Christ, to rest in his completed work. You're going to know, and maybe your husband or your wife, you're going to know in a friend if they're struggling, they're without contentment, they're struggling to feel fulfilled. You get to work in each other's lives to exhort us, each other, to faith. When we're worried about acceptance, exhort one another to realize Jesus has accepted you. When you're in your professional life and you feel, you have this feeling it's just unfulfilling, I'm not, I'm never, I'm never, it's never working out like I want it to be. Exhort one another that work unto the Lord today. He is, he, he will reward you in that. It's certain there is a fulfillment of that. And one day your work will be all new in this new place of being with the Lord. When you're in conflict with another, exhort one another. There's a peace that comes in Jesus by faith. Have faith. Exhort one another to faith. This is our role as a church. This is what we get to do for one another. This is the way that we enter into the rest. I want to close with one final irony. We've been saying all work, but not all work leads to rest. But the irony is that rest is available to all. (laughs) All don't rest, but the the rest is available to all. Jesus offers rest to everyone, everyone here. The middle schooler, like myself, the student, the retired person, maybe you're dealing with some health issues, the retired person, rich and the poor, the disabled and the whole, he offers rest. He offers rest today, this is present rest, and he offers rest into the future. Jesus offers a peace and contentment and a fulfillment in him that is partial now, but completely there in the future. That day in the future where Sabbath rest will be a 100%. Acceptance will be completely full. Now we have acceptance in part because we do lose relationships. Then it will be completely full. Honor now we have in part. We know we're sons of God. Then we will be fully known and be in God's presence. Fulfillment will be a 100% then. Contentment will be daily at that time when contentment can come and go today. This is the, this is the, this is the, the rest that is available to all. All work, but not all rest, not all work leads to rest. But in Jesus, we can all find rest. The disabled man, he was working, but he was hopeless and defeated. He missed the one who gives rest. Those who are Christians here, those who are seekers, today we can put our faith in Jesus. He's promised it. He's given it. He's the one who gives rest. Put your faith in Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, I rest in you. I rest in the sufficiency of your word. I pray that your word would encourage your people, that they would be able to trust in it, 
that you are the one who offers uh, complete acceptance. You're the one who gives your people a, a place and an honor that is not found in this world. May we all long for the day where we have complete rest in you. May, may we, by faith, know that it's coming and believe it, and then have a peace today because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.